Section 5 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 2, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2, Benjamin Whichcote, Reason and Religion, Part 3. It will now be our aim to exhibit somewhat more fully the substance of Whichcote's teaching. Its main tendencies have already appeared in the correspondence with Tuckney, but it is necessary to draw them out in greater fullness and detail as presented in his discourses and aphorisms four volumes of discourses and a series of moral and religious aphorisms collected from his manuscripts and forming the first portion of one volume containing the correspondence from which we have quoted so largely comprise all his works they give probably but an inadequate picture of his intellectual and religious activity he was so obviously greater, according to our estimate, as a living teacher than as an author, but they are all that survive from his pen or that help us to understand the character of his influence. Unhappily they are imperfect in some degree, both in substance and in form. None of them were published during his lifetime, nor even left by him in a state for publication. Their history is, in fact, a curious one, and of itself deserves attention. Two years after his death appeared a small octavo of eight sheets, under the title Theophoromena Logmata, or Some Select Notions of that Learned and Reverend Divine Dr. B. Whichcote, faithfully collected by a pupil and particular friend of his. The volume consists of notes on a few texts of Scripture, and a series of what the editor calls apostolical apothems. Of the editor nothing is known, and the volume itself seems to have gone out of sight entirely. Then, in 1697, there was published a Treatise of Devotion with Morning and Evening Prayer for All the Days of the Week, attributed to our author, and which has also disappeared. In the following year, his select sermons were printed in two parts, with a preface which has been universally ascribed to the Earl of Shaftesbury, author of The Characteristics. The preface bears internal evidence of its authorship, and is a very interesting and characteristic document, both in relation to Whichcote and Shaftesbury. It contains no indication, however, of the manner in which either the publisher or the writer of the preface became possessed of the sermons. They are held forth as the genuine productions of the author, beyond question, in contrast to some things, which had been lately set out in his name, which his best friends disowned to be his, in allusion, it is supposed, to the Treatise of Devotion, printed in the preceding year, or possibly to the imperfect notes collected by a pupil shortly after his death. A very unnecessary apology is made for the unpolished style and phrase of the author, as, quote, being more used to school learning and the language of an university than to the conversation of the fashionable world, close quote. It is further stated that none of the discourses were ever designed for publication, and that the publisher has sometimes supplied the author out of himself by transferring to a defective place that which he found in some other discourse where the same subject was treated. Yet it is added, quote, so great a regard was had to the very text and letter of the author that he, the editor, would not alter the least word, and wheresoever he had added anything, he has taken care to mark it in different characters. This edition was reprinted at Edinburgh about the middle of last century, in 1742, by Dr. Wishart, principal of the university, with a dedication to young ministers and students in divinity. Wishart was himself a remarkable man, of great learning and liberality of spirit. He also edited and prefixed a recommendatory preface to Scugel's Life of God in the Soul of Man, a well-known work of the small school of Scottish meditative divines, who have some analogy to the great Cambridge school in the seventeenth century. Footnote. 
Skugel was born in 1650 and died in 1678, only 28 years of age. He was one year minister of a country parish and four years divinity professor in King's College, Aberdeen. End of footnote. Wishart was prosecuted for heresy by the Presbytery of Edinburgh in 1738, among other things for wishing to remove confessions and freeing persons from subscription thereto, and for licentiously extending the liberty of Christian subjects. But the prosecution was unsuccessful. Both the Synod and the General Assembly acquitted him, and he afterwards rose to great influence in the Church, and became moderator in the year of the Rebellion, 1745. Principal Wishart, no doubt, appreciated the full significance of Whichcote's sermons, and sought to extend their influence in Scotland. It is difficult to say how far he may have succeeded in this, or what traces may be found of them in the religious literature of the time, which was then assuming, in the northern part of the island, that somewhat extreme phase of rationality which has been stigmatized under the name of moderatism. One curious testimony to their widespread circulation is to be found in the fact that an edition, not only of the sermons edited by Shaftesbury, but of the others subsequently published by Whichcote's own friends, appeared at Aberdeen from the press of J. Chalmers in 1751. To this day, this edition is the most common and easily accessible to the ordinary student. It may have been Shaftesbury's edition in 1698, and the language of his preface, which seems in some respects to have been displeasing to Whichcote's friends, or the mere knowledge that there were many unauthorized copies of his sermons in circulation, which led them in the beginning of the eighteenth century to entertain the idea of issuing an edition, as far as possible, from his own manuscripts. His nephew entrusted his papers to Dr. Jeffrey, quote, who had the highest veneration for the deceased author, and every talent beside that could qualify him to be a diligent, faithful, and judicious editor. Close quote. Footnote. Jeffrey was Archdeacon of Norwich, and author of a volume entitled Religion, the Perfection of Man, London, 1689. He also edited Sir Thomas Brown's Christian Morals. End of footnote. The result of Dr. Jeffrey's labors was the publication, in the three first years of the eighteenth century, of three octavo volumes of Whichcote's sermons, to which a fourth volume was afterwards added under the care of Dr. Samuel Clark. To the same editor we owe the original publication of the Moral and Religious Aphorisms, which were revised and re-edited in 1753 by Dr. Salter, Jeffrey's grandson, who, quote, felicitates himself most unaffectedly that he lives in an age, a happiness which his reverend grandfather Jeffrey could not boast, in which such a generous freedom of thinking, chastened and tempered by the genuine spirit of true piety, and a most exalted devotion, and by the most sound and exact judgment in religion and all learning, cleared from froth and grounds, as the ever-memorable Mr. John Hales of Eton expresseth it, meets with the esteem and applause it so well deserves. Such men as Whichcote, the same complacent and somewhat indiscriminating admirer adds, quote, do indeed recommend religion by their lives and by their writings, proving its influence on themselves, and show well-grounded persuasion of its truth by the whole tenor of their conduct, and making such, and only such, representations of it in their works, as demonstrate its entire agreeableness to the best improved reason of man, as show it to be worthy of God to institute, and of man to believe and to obey, placing it in its fairest and truest light as the highest perfection of the human nature and greatest improvement of the human powers, while the narrow systematical pretenders to religion, before and since his time, do all they can to expose and disgrace what they cannot extinguish and destroy. 
these men to anticipate the masculine sense and words of the aphorisms fancy they advance religion while they but draw it down to bodily acts or carry it up into i know not what of mystical symbolical emblematical whereas the christian religion is not mystical symbolical enigmatical but unclothed unbodied intellectual rational spiritual Close quote. it is somewhat difficult to group whichcote's views and opinions scattered throughout his sermons and aphorisms and yet it would be of little use to present to the reader an unclassified series of extracts we will make the best attempt we can to bring together the main points of his teaching under several heads we begin with that which may be said to be the center and most distinctive principle of all his thought one the use of reason in religion the following are some of his most characteristic sayings on this subject Quote, I find that some men take offense to have reason spoken of out of a pulpit, or to hear those great words of natural light or principles of reason and conscience. They are doubtless in a mighty mistake. There is no inconsistency between the grace of God and the calling upon men carefully to use, improve, and employ the principles of God's creation. Indeed, this is a very profitable work to call upon men to answer the principles of their creation, to fulfill natural light, to answer natural conscience, to be throughout rational in what they do, for these things have a divine foundation. The spirit in man is the candle of the Lord, lighted by God, and lighting man to God. Therefore, to speak of natural light, of the use of reason in religion, is to do no disservice at all to grace, for God is acknowledged in both, in the former as laying the groundwork of his creation, in the latter as reviving and restoring it. A man has as much right to use his own understanding in judging of truth as he has a right to use his own eyes to see his way. The written word of God is not the first or only discovery of the duty of man. It doth gather and repeat and reinforce and charge upon us the scattered and neglected principles of God's creation that has suffered prejudice and damnation by the defection and apostasy of man. Those that differ upon reason may come together by reason. He that gives reason for what he saith has done what is fit to be done, and the most that can be done. He that gives no reason speaks nothing, though he saith never so much. There is nothing proper and peculiar to man but the use of reason and the exercise of virtue. To go against reason is to go against God. It is the self-same to do that which the reason of the case doth require, and that which God himself doth appoint. Reason is the divine governor of man's life. It is the very voice of God. Religion consists in things that are good in themselves, or that are for the recovery in us of what are good in themselves. Nothing in religion is a burthen, but a remedy or a pleasure. When the doctrine of the gospel becomes the reason of our mind, it will be the principle of our life. Reason discovers what is natural, and reason receives what is supernatural. Quote. 2. Differences of Opinion Among Christians Quote, by the way, I will observe how little there is in many controversies, if wise and temperate men had the managing of them. But when once there is suspicion and jealousy, these make and increase differences. All artists differ in their notions. There are different opinions on several points of philosophy. What is one man's meat is another's medicine and another's poison. We differ in age, in stature, in feature, in gait, in complexion, in constitution of life, in profession. These varieties and differences, as well as harmonies and proportions, explain the infinite wisdom of the Creator. Yet all agreeing in human nature are fit companions one for another, can take delight in each other's company. Why should not they who meet in the regenerate nature, 
who agree on the great articles of faith and principles of good life, overlook subordinate differences. If there be love and good will, we come to be more rational, better grounded in our resolution from our different apprehensions. Discourse is as soon ended as begun, where all say the same. Whereas he that speaks after, and says a new thing, searcheth the former, Proverbs 18.17, so no truth will be lost for want of being offered to consideration. We may meet in the rule of truth, though we differ in the particular application. If there were no contradiction in the several apprehensions of men, we might never be awakened to search into things, and so if we were once in a mistake we should never come out of it. The points of Christian faith are as clearly intelligible to all capacities as they are clearly necessary to be believed by all men. God accepts alike the faith that results from the dark mists of the ignorant and from the clearest intelligence of the learned. The holy scriptures are so written that they are sooner understood by an unlearned man that is pious and modest than by a philosopher who is arrogant and proud. Why should not consent in the main be more available to concord and union than difference when powerful matters prevail to distance and separation? Every man hath a right of judging, if he be capable. Yea, can a man, ought a man, to believe otherwise than he sees cause? Is it in a man's power to believe as he would, or only as the reason of the thing appears to him? He that is light of faith, by the same reason, will be light of unbelief. He will as easily disbelieve truth as believe error. By discourse men accommodate things. In conference they render a reason. There is, gratia voltus, the light of one's countenance. Presence is winning. The presence of men conciliates favor and acceptance. When persons at difference talk together, they often find that they stand not at that distance they did imagine. Distance gives tale-bearers opportunity and advantage. Tis neither of our fault that our understandings are not cast in the same mould, or that our organs or bodily constitutions which occasion variety are not alike. It may be also our apprehensions are nearer than our expressions. Two who think they say not the same may think the same as to God. Nothing is desperate in the condition of good men. They will not live and die in any dangerous error. God, who will not lose anything that is good, will finally save what is capable of salvation, will not reject malign dispositions which will not be altered and subdued to the temper of heaven. Jerome and Rufinus charged each other with heresy. Chrysostom and Epiphanius refused to join in prayers, the former wishing the latter might not return alive, the latter that the former might not die a bishop, both which came to pass. Tis a great mistake in quest for truth to let it run out on some smaller matters which have scarce been thought of by the whole series of Christians of all ages, but only of late. They who have rashly augmented the materials of faith have thereby weakened and diminished charity. Two things a man may easily perceive, whether he be a hypocrite, whether an heretic. Not the former if he means well, not the latter if he be not willful, but patient to be informed. It becomes the modesty of particular persons, when their sentiments are singular, to ask themselves this sober question, how went the Spirit of God from the generality of his worshippers, and determined itself to me? All these passages are taken from two sermons in the beginning of the second volume on the traits of the church maintained by sincere Christians. They might be increased indefinitely. Many of the noble descriptions by our author of the essence and character of true religion also well deserve quotation, but the following extracts, with those already given, must suffice to bring something like a picture of Whichcote's mind before our readers. 3. The Character of True Religion Quote, a true gospel spirit doth excel in meekness, gentleness, modesty, humility, 
patience, forbearance. And these are eminent endowments, and mightily qualify men to live in the world. This is that which makes men bear universal love and good will, and overcomes evil with good, teacheth men to return courtesies for injuries. This, I dare say, had we a man among us that we could produce that did live an exact gospel life, had we a man that was really gospelized, were the gospel a life, a soul, and a spirit to him, as principles upon moral considerations are, he would be the most lovely, useful person under heaven. This man, for everything that is excellent and worthy and useful, would be miraculous and extraordinary in the eyes of all men in the world. Christianity would be recommended to the world by his spirit and conversation. For the life of the heavenly state, so far as it can be expressed to us, is delivered in the gospel law and rule, and is put into an act in a gospel spirit and life. The fruit of the spirit in us is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Were a man sincere, honest, and true in the way of his religion, he would not be grievous, intolerable, or unsufferable to anybody, but he would command due honor and draw unto himself love and esteem. For the true gospel spirit is transcendently and eminently remarkable every way for those things that are lovely in the eyes of men, for ingenuity, modesty, humility, gravity, patience, meekness, charity, kindness, etc. And so far as any one is Christian in spirit and power, so far he is refined and reformed by these graces. Such is the nature of religion, that it keeps the mind in a good frame and temper, it establishes a healthful complexion and constitution of soul, and makes it to discharge itself duly in all its offices towards God, with itself, and with men. Whereas the mind of a wicked and profane man is a very wilderness, where lust and exorbitant passions bear down all before them, and are more fierce and cruel than wolves, bears, and tigers. The heavenly state consists in the mind's freedom from these kind of things. It doth clear the mind from all impotent and unsatiable desires, which do abuse and toss a man's soul, and make it restless and unquiet. It sets a man free from eager and impetuous loves, and by these men are torn in pieces, from vain and disappointing hopes, which sink men into melancholy, from lawless and exorbitant appetites, from frothy and empty joys, from dismal presaging fears and anxious self-devouring cares, from inward heart-burnings, from self-eating envy, from swelling pride and ambition, from dull and black melancholy, from boiling anger and raging fury, from a gnawing, aching conscience, from an arbitrary presumption, from rigid sourness and severity of spirit. For these make the man that is not biased and principled with religion to seethe like a pot, inwardly to boil with the fire and pitchy fumes of hell, and as outrageous as when the great Leviathan doth cause the waves of the sea to cast out mire and dirt. The first thing in religion is to refine a man's temper, and the second to govern his practice. If a man's religion do not this, his religion is a poor slender thing, and of little consideration. Tis then only a naked profession, and fit to give him a denomination. I say, such a man's religion is but of little value, for it hath no efficacy, but falls short of the very principles of nature. Religion is intelligible, rational, and accountable. It is not our burthen, but our privilege. The moral part of religion never alters. Moral laws are laws of themselves, without sanction by will, and the necessity of them arises from the things themselves. All other things in religion are in order to these. The moral part of religion does sanctify the soul, and is final both to what is instrumental and instituted. There is nothing so intrinsically rational as religion is, nothing that can so justify itself. 
nothing that hath so pure reason to recommend itself as religion hath the more false any one is in his religion the more fierce and furious in maintaining it the more mistaken the more imposing there are but two things in religion morals and institutions morals may be known by the reason of the thing morals are owned as soon as spoken and they are nineteen parts in twenty of all religion institutions depend upon scripture and no one institution depends upon one text of scripture only that institution which has but one text for it has never a one all the differences in christendom are about institutions not about morals he that produceth the best reason in morals and he that produceth the best scripture in institutions is to be closed with protestants follow the law of god's creation according to the law of god's institution theirs is reasonable service religion is the being as much like god as man can be like him religion which is a bond of union ought not to be a ground of division but it is in an unnatural use when it doth disunite men cannot differ by true religion because it is true religion to agree the spirit of religion is a reconciling spirit the state of religion lies in a good mind and a good life all else is about religion and men must not put the instrumental part of religion for the state of religion religion doth possess and affect the whole man in the understanding it is knowledge in the life it is obedience in the affections it is delight in god in our carriage and behavior it is modesty calmness gentleness quietness candor ingenuity in our dealings it is uprightness integrity correspondence with the rule of righteousness religion makes men virtuous in all instances religion has different denominations and names from different actions and circumstances but it is one thing viz universal righteousness accordingly it had place at all times before the law of moses under it and since religion is not a hearsay a presumption a supposition is not a customary pretension and profession is not an affectation of any mode is not a piety of particular fancy consisting of some pathetic devotions vehement expressions bodily severities affected anomalies and aversions from the innocent usages of others but consisteth in a profound humility and an universal charity truth lies in a little compass and narrow room vitals in religion are few the moral part of religion consists of things good in themselves necessary and indispensable the instituted part of religion consists of things made necessary only by the determinations of the divine will he that denies the former is atheistical he that denies the latter is infidel Close quote. four prayer and forms of prayer quote, in the reformed church there is both use of forms of prayer and allowance for conceived prayer and they are both justified as to forms of prayer they are great helps to our wandering mind and then they are proper and succinct whereas prayers suddenly conceived are not so are not always purely prayer matter which is of four sorts matter of confession of sin thankfulness to god for his goodness acknowledging him in his greatness and our dependence upon him and petitioning him for grace that that refers not to these four is extravagance in prayer i do observe a great deal in conceived prayer is very good but may do better in the sermon now this advantage a form of prayer hath that things are proper and succinct the true excellency of prayer is a sincere intention of mind in presenting our thoughts to god Close quote. five popery quote, an implicit faith in men or in the church this is popery there are three great designs in popery 
one to keep the civil magistrate in awe two to maintain the clergy in state and honor three to keep the people in ignorance and so to enslave them the romanists adulterate what is true in religion and superadd what is false six miscellaneous aphorisms quote, he that is light of belief will be as light of unbelief if he has a mind to it by the same reason he will as easily believe an error as a truth and as easily disbelieve a truth as an error i have always found that such preaching of others hath most commanded my heart which hath most illuminated my head the reason of our mind is the best instrument we have to work withal reason is not a shallow thing it is the first participation from god therefore he that observes reason observes god heaven is first a temper and then a place the longest sword the strongest lungs the most voices are false measures of truth no man is to make religion for himself but to receive it from god and the teachers of the church are not to make religion for their hearers but to show it only as received from god curious determinations beyond scripture are thought to be the improvement of faith and inconsiderate dullness to be the denial of our religion fierceness in a sect to be zeal for religion and speaking without sense to be the simplicity of the spirit determinations beyond scripture have indeed enlarged faith but lessened charity and multiplied divisions it is better for us that there should be difference of judgment if we keep charity but it is most unmanly to quarrel because we differ let him that is assured that he errs in nothing take upon him to condemn every man that errs in anything in doctrines of supernatural revelation we shall do well to direct our apprehensions and to regulate our expressions by words of scripture it is not necessary to the satisfaction of him who is offended that a perfect recompense should be made by the offender but the offended is master of his own right and may accept of ingenuous acknowledgment only from the offender as satisfaction if he pleases an expiation is then made when that which is displeasing is taken away by something which is pleasing lord verulam everyone almost worships idolum fori the idol of general imagination fools and conceited persons worship idolum specus the idol of particular fancy it is less to worship idolum fori than idolum specus though best to worship neither if i have not a friend god send me an enemy that i may hear of my faults to be admonished of an enemy is next to having a friend there is nothing more unnatural to religion than contentions about it nothing is more specific to man than the capacity of religion and sense of god among politicians the esteem of religion is profitable the principles of it are troublesome platonists principle of creation eros and penia the activity of divine love the non-entity of all creatures the grossest errors are but abuses of some noble truths we are all of us at times in a fool's paradise more or less as if all were our own all as we would have it enthusiastic doctrines good things strained out of their wits among christians those that pretend to be inspired seem to be mad among the turks those that are mad are thought to be inspired it is inconsistent with any kind of honesty and virtue to neglect and despise all kind of religion it is not good to live in jest since we must die in earnest it is unnecessary to add to our quotations much as we feel that they give only an imperfect idea of the substance of which coates thought its temper and quality are sufficiently apparent his conceptions of human nature of religion and of the church 
all stand forth in distinct contrast to the prevailing modes of thought. A new, broader, and more philosophical element enters into them. It may be difficult to sum up in definite detail the distinctive points of difference, but there is no difficulty in catching everywhere the breath of a new spirit, and in recognizing that he looks at the same subjects in a more comprehensive and intellectual manner. Traditionalism, whether of dogma or institution, affects him little. He moves in an ideal and open atmosphere, unfamiliar to the school theologian. Truth is not embodied to him in this or that form of divine assumption, standing apart from the ordinary cycle of human knowledge and experience. Religion does not displace or supersede or make an extraneous addition to other truths. It is apprehended as the summit and ideal of all others. Man's knowledge does not lie in incommunicable spheres, the secular and the spiritual, but in different planes of elevation, the lower tending towards the higher, and the higher sending down its light to the lower levels of intellectual aspiration. I cannot, he says, quote, distinguish truth in itself, but in way of descent to us, truth either of first inscription, in reason, or of after-revelation from God. God hath set up two lights to enlighten us in our way, the light of reason, which is the light of his creation, and the light of scripture, which is after-revelation from him. Let us make use of these two lights, and suffer neither to be put out. This is a higher range of thought than that hitherto reached by any Protestant theologian in England, with the exception of Hooker, who, as we have already said, struck into the same vein in a special direction. He saw distinctly, in connection with his subject of ecclesiastical polity, how the lines of spiritual truth in reason and revelation converge. But he did not see with equal clearness, or at least he did not interpret with equally consistent comprehension, their intermingling and coordination in all directions, so as to irradiate the whole theological sphere with the light of rational inquiry. Hales and Chillingworth boldly adventured in the same path, but under limitations arising out of the nature of their subjects and the special religious controversies of their time. The necessities of controversy still embarrass Whichcote, but it takes with him, from the first, a wider sweep and elevation. A higher philosophic manner marks even his correspondence with Tuckney, which is directly polemical in form. And in his sermons there is scarcely a trace of the theological polemic. He is by turns the religious philosopher, the moralist, the evangelical expositor, scarcely ever the dogmatist or controversialist. In passing to these sermons from either the high church or the Puritan literature of the time, we feel ourselves surrounded with an ampler ether, a diviner air. Points of doctrine and duty are discussed in their broadest rational relations, and not merely as parts or data of an inherited system. Human nature is conceived and depicted not as set forth in the creeds, but in the totality of its spiritual powers and functions as a rational constitution in a rational universe. Religion is not a mere section of knowledge supernaturally communicated, nor a side of life supernaturally imparted, but a culture and discipline of the whole man, an education and consecration of all his higher activities. And so religion is not only not independent of morality, but its necessary complement, not only not an enemy of philosophy, but its highest fulfillment. Christianity binds the broken lines of human aspiration into a well-orbed power, which embraces and completes them all. The simplicity and grandeur of religious truth and its independence of the special dogmas which divide Christians, had been well exhibited in the liberty of prophesying, but Taylor was himself, 
as some of his subsequent writings show, only partially emancipated from the crudities and formalities of scholastic tradition. He could not maintain, and indeed he probably never realized, in relation to thought and life as a whole, the same rational and enlightened elevation which necessity compelled him to occupy on the subject of the church. It remained to Whichcote, as a preacher, to take up the idea of religion in its full breadth, moral and philosophical, and, like the Alexandrine teachers of old, and the Platonic temper always, to bring it into affinity with all the varied energies of humanity. True thought and true power everywhere, all pure and high ideas, all pure and healthy activities, all genuine expressions of reason and aspirations of nature are so far religion. Christianity is distinct and supreme, not in rejecting and casting aside, but in interpreting and completing what is otherwise good and true in man. Morality, even in its most obscure forms, is its shadow, philosophy its summit. Reason is not only not opposed to faith, but there can be no faith without reason, nor yet any higher reason without faith. In other words, the spiritual life of our race is a unity. All our aspirations are alike divine, whether they are kindled within us by the candle of the Lord set up in our hearts, or by the light of the divine word communicated to us from without. To initiate once more such a phase of thought as this, to penetrate to the deeper relations and harmonies of spiritual truth, and so to the unity of all the moral forces which govern civilization, was a great gain for the seventeenth century. It was something more than merely to expand and moralize the conception of the church. It was to expand, elevate, and universalize the whole conception of religion, and of the moral rights of human nature and so to prepare the way for the triumph of those principles of civil and religious liberty which we derive, although not directly, from the conflicts of the century. End of chapter 2, part 3